I'd like to begin this evening with a quotation from a, a Catholic priest, actually, named Henri J.M. Nguyen. I believe he's Canadian. <clears throat> he once said this, The spiritual life is a life in which we wait, actively present to the moment, trusting that new things will happen to us, new things that are far beyond our own imagination, fantasy, or prediction. This indeed is a very radical stance toward life in a world preoccupied with control. I think this, uh, this description, this idea of waiting actively present to the moment is a, is a really great, uh, very beautiful description of mindfulness practice, of our practice here on retreat. This active presence. We, we know so much, at least we think we do. But can we step beyond the boundaries of all that we think we know, all that we believe to be true, and adopt something more like this kind of stance, this waiting actively present to the moment with a sense of trust that new things will present themselves, new things that are beyond what we might predict beyond what we might believe to be true or possible. In meditation practice, we move below, you could say we drop below the world of conceptual reality from the surface appearance of things and to a kind of direct experience, kind of precognitive understanding beneath all that we think we know and all of our ideas about the world, about ourselves, about reality, who and what we believe ourselves to be. And we meet each moment with what uh, the great Zen teacher Suzuki Roshi called beginner's mind. Sometimes it's called don't know mind this kind of fresh, alive relationship to the moment. Keep thinking I'm hearing something (laughs) wafting in through the window. (laughs) Sounds vaguely like distant chanting. Is it? It's a cow. It's a cow? A chainsaw. Oh, really? (laughs) It's a cow, it's a chainsaw. It's, 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 it's nuns chanting now. Okay, I heard chanting. <laughs> you heard a cow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good, it's not in my head. <laughs> That's the uh, crucial, the crucial question there. <laughs> okay, what, is that external or internal? Um, <laughs> see if I can get going again. <laughs> hmm. Yes, all right. Hmm. You know, we can have such strong beliefs about ourselves, about the universe, and uh, they can be so strong that we don't even notice them, don't question them, and wind up living our whole life based on assumptions and beliefs that we take for granted. We don't ever look to see if it's true. There was a time when I was in... uh, practicing in Burma with one of our teachers, Sayada Upandita, 
and it was a long retreat there. And at one point he said something that was, um, so it seems like just stating the obvious, deceptively simple thing, but it stuck with me. It's, it still comes into my mind periodically. He said, that which did not exist before arises, takes birth, and has its life and then passes away. And you know, we both Michelle and Rebecca in the last two nights have been talking about this, this truth that each moment is new. We don't know. It's like a new birth in each moment. Mm. It struck me so strongly that at that time, that which did not exist before, because we, we, we relate to so much in our life and experience as though it's always been here, always been this way. We know it. We think we know what a breath is, what a sound. Monks chanting, no, chainsaw, cow. <laughs> Sensation. But it takes courage and trust to open to life in this way, to let go of our attempts to control our experience on one hand, and, and on the other hand, we need to find confidence, faith, trust, to show up for each moment, not knowing what's there, not knowing the truth of it, letting go of what we think we know. A number of years ago, a teacher of mine asked me to name one quality, the single quality that I thought was most important or essential on the path as a, that one thing that would be most important to lead to freedom. And I think at that time, I, I said something like perseverance, steadfastness, you know, some, some willing, willingness to stay with it through ups and downs, you know, I think of it as a kind of doggedness, you know, I'm going to stay with this. And it seemed like a good answer. It, we're not going to go very far if we don't stick with it. So there's, well, it's a pretty good answer. But then I asked a, a friend of mine who was a meditation teacher the same question, and, and she immediately said faith without thinking for even a second, just really immediately, unequivocally said faith is the single most essential quality. And I was struck by it at the time. I, I didn't really understand in that moment at that time just what she might be pointing to. And, and I thought, well, it was a trick question and I didn't get it right. <laughs> you know, the answer came so quickly that oh, I should have known that somehow. The Buddha is famously quoted as saying, I teach only one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. It's actually two things, but... Um, be that as it's may, it, that statement has led over time to a lot of misunderstanding. You know, Buddhism gets a bad rap as kind of a downer religion. You know, life is suffering doesn't sound too good if that's what we hear in that statement. You know, the end of suffering that sounds okay, it sounds pretty good. But why teach suffering? What's up with that? You know, what's that about? But part of the problem with that is, is the translation of, of the Pali word dukkha as suffering. This is from uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, known as Tanjef. He said, no single English word adequately captures the full depth, range, and subtlety of the crucial Pali term dukkha. Over the years, many translations of the word have been used, stress, unsatisfactoriness, suffering, and so on. 
each has its own merits in a given context. There's no, there's value in not letting oneself get too comfortable with any one particular translation of this word, since the entire thrust of Buddhist practice is the broadening and deepening of one's understanding of dukkha until its roots are finally exposed and eradicated once and for all. One helpful rule of thumb, as soon as you think you found the single best translation for the word, think again. For no matter how you describe dukkha, it's always, more, it's always deeper, more subtle, and more unsatisfactory than that. So what exactly does dukkha mean, this word dukkha, which goes to the heart of the Buddhist teaching, the very core? You know, we need some connection with this, some kind of understanding. It really is crucial for us in, as we walk this path. I was, uh, while I was thinking about this talk and, and putting it together, I, I found myself at times remembering my introduction to meditation practice quite a few years ago now. And at that time, I was living in San Francisco. I had a, a business with uh, some few partners, and it was interesting work. I had, uh, you know, it, it was really neat work. I used to make giant bugs and things. Uh, sculptures and models for a museum. And uh, so I hung out with artsy types and I had, uh, I lived in an old converted fire station in the city and had a really cool vintage motorcycle and a nice leather jacket and um, (laughs) overall a high level of coolness, which was very important to me (laughs) at that time. That was quite important. I I seem to have devolved since then. not sure quite what happened. <laughs> my, my inner nerd has raised its head. <laughs> happens sometimes. <laughs> it's kind of sad. <laughs> Although I still have a nice leather jacket. <laughs> anyway. And I, you know, I, had, I wasn't getting rich by any means, but I had some, enough money that I could travel once in a while. Some flexibility in my life and you know, nothing really to complain about in an enviable life in many ways. But there's this thread of dissatisfaction, a kind of uh, lack of ease that ran through my life when I slowed down enough to notice it. You know, and I felt as if I'd, I'd tried so many things. I felt like there wasn't anything I could think of that I hadn't tried as a way to, to be happy you know, travel and relationships and work and interesting experiences of all kinds, but nothing seemed to quite do the trick, at least not for very long. And I was connecting with the truth of dukkha at that time. I didn't realize it. There was no understanding of that. And this word dukkha doesn't refer only to painful experience, to suffering. This word suffering is inadequate to capture the the depth of understanding with dukkha, but it points to the unsatisfactory, ultimately unsatisfactory nature of, of all things, of all conditioned phenomena. Because of their impermanent nature, there's this liability to suffering because they don't last. And this includes pleasurable, enjoyable experiences as well. You know, dukkha points to this unreliability due to the changing nature of things. We can't hold on to them, they don't last. 
They can't bring lasting happiness. I found this contemporary, more contemporary definition of dukkha by uh, someone named Francis Story, who had written a, uh, a paper um, on the three basic facts of existence. It's from the Polytech Society. It's kind of a long list. Dukkha is disturbance, irritation, dejection, worry, despair, fear, dread, anguish, anxiety, vulnerability, injury, inability, inferiority, sickness, aging, decay of body and faculties, senility, pain, pleasure, excitement, boredom, deprivation, excess, desire, frustration, suppression, longing, aimlessness, hope, hopelessness, effort, activity, striving, repression, loss, want, insufficiency. I'm most of the way through. (laughs) I just, I found this fascinating. Satiety, love, lovelessness, friendship, friendlessness, dislike, aversion, attraction, parenthood, childlessness, submission, rebellion, decision, indecisiveness, vacillation, and uncertainty. So you'll be quizzed on that list. (laughs) There's a lot there. But it points to the range. You know, some of those things were good things, or things we wouldn't put in necessarily in the list of what is dukkha. But none of them last. And you know, we all want happiness. This is a universal wish that really all beings share in some fundamental way. We want to be happy. It's kind of the bottom line for living beings. It's natural, normal. It's, it's actually a beautiful, inherently lovable feeling, isn't it? You know, we can actually tune into this shared wish that we have to be happy as a way to arouse feelings of loving kindness, of metta. It's one way that we can touch this quality of care when we do metta practice, the shared wish to be at ease. But what is this thing, somewhat elusive thing we call happiness, you know? What, what is that? Often if we look in our experience, what we mostly find that this points to, at least a lot of the time for us, it's pointing to some kind of pleasant feeling in the body and the mind. Light, pleasant physical sensations, light, happy mind states, pleasant mind states. And on the other hand, we all want to avoid what we find unpleasant, painful, disagreeable. And again, it's a natural thing. No one wants to suffer. No one wants to be in pain. But then what happens often is that our strategy for finding happiness becomes a quest to string together as many pleasant feelings in a row as possible, while at the same time trying as best we can to avoid unpleasant feelings. And we can't ever pull this off for very long, can we? But sometimes we can see that a lot of our life can be seen in terms of this push and pull movement towards what's pleasant, the movement away from what's unpleasant. And it can become very, very extreme at times. And we see this in in the range of addictive behaviors, the movement towards trying to get pleasant, to be there all the time. 
but it's, it becomes an exhausting and ultimately fruitless quest because we can't arrange our lives so that we only have pleasant feelings, pleasurable experiences. You know, life is not fully amenable to our will. It never can be that way. And no matter how hard we try, we can't always have it be the way we want. And this doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to live as well as we can. You know, that's not the point. We don't fall into some resignation or despair about this situation, give up somehow. We, we do the best we can. We do the, the dance of life in the best way we can find. But we can see how this movement towards pleasant away from unpleasant plays out in, in our meditation practice a lot. Or if we look and see what we call a good sitting, it has a higher percentage of pleasant feelings. Often and what we call a bad sitting has a higher percentage maybe of unpleasant feelings. But no matter what, we're all gonna get the range of pleasant and unpleasant, pleasure and pain, joy and sorrow, these worldly conditions that, that are part of the deal when we take birth. You know, we don't wanna see this. Sometimes it seems like it's bad news, you know. And secretly we're holding out some hope that we'll be able to reach a state where we can only have pleasant experiences. I said this the other night, but sometimes we have this image, this idea, this sense of enlightenment means only pleasant experiences, some kind of steady state where it's always, we always like the way it is. And so opening to the truth of change in, in this way of seeing dukkha, this unreliability, instability, unsatisfactory nature of, of all conditioned things, opens the door to the practice. It's where we start. It's where the Buddha started. I teach one thing only, suffering and the end of it. Because until we really open to it, we're gonna be looking for a way out by turning to something that by its very nature is unreliable, inherently unreliable, ultimately incapable of bringing a lasting happiness. And so when we open to the truth of dukkha, we will turn to seeking that which might actually be reliable, something that might be reliable, a deeper kind of happiness, a happiness of peace that doesn't depend on things being a particular way. This is from the great uh, Thai forest master, Ajahn Chah. He said, in Dhamma practice, we begin with the truth of dukkha, the pervasive unsatisfactoriness of existence. But as soon as we experience this, we lose heart. We don't want to look at it. Dukkha is really the truth, but we want to get around it somehow. It's similar to the way we don't like to look at old people, but prefer to look at those who are young. If we don't want to look at dukkha, we will never understand dukkha, no matter how many births we go through. Dukkha is a noble truth. If we allow ourselves to face it, then we will start to seek a way out of it. If we are trying to go somewhere and the road is blocked, we will think about how to make a pathway. There's a, a kind of a core teaching that the Buddha spoke of in one of his very early discourses. 
And it's an understanding that came as part of his realization on the night of his enlightenment, his awakening. It's called dependent origination, paticca samuppada in Pali. And it's, it's basically describes a chain of cause, causes, a chain of causal links. It's 12 links to this chain that ends with dukkha. It shows how dukkha arises through a chain of cause and effect. And it's basically saying, because of this, then this, because of this, then this. And I'm not going to go into the details of this teaching. It's um, not, not my subject tonight. But there's another teaching, kind of an extension to that, it's called transcendent dependent origination. This is what a teacher named Ajahn Brahm says about that. He says, this teaching extends what happens after dukkha. It doesn't stop there. According to that teaching, dukkha is the cause for the arising of faith, the arising of confidence. Once one sees dukkha, then one realize that there's, realizes that there is something to be done. Dukkha is the very cause for people to arouse themselves and say, right, I'm going to do something about that. So this truth opening to Dukkha is really the start. But we also need something to have some trust, confidence in. You know, we need to open to the truth of Dukkha, but we need to recognize and recognize that there's something to be done but we need to encounter something that points to a possibility for a greater understanding. And I was thinking about my introduction to meditation and I remember my very first retreat. This might be a first retreat for some of you. And my first retreat was 10 days long and I I hadn't meditated for even a second before going to it. It was my, my friend said, well, this would be a good way to learn how to meditate. So I, wanted to, I, would, I wanted to learn. I said, well, I'll go to this retreat. And uh, I remember it wasn't easy. <laughs> and my friend made me promise that I would stay for at least three days because she uh, suspected I would probably bolt, <laughs> I think. And um, it was all very new to me. And... Uh, I'll tell you one funny story. There were all these nice, helpful notes around. Please don't bring any food or drink into the meditation hall. Signed, Metta. And another one, you know, please be on time for the sittings. Metta. And I I was convinced there was a a helpful busybody named Metta who kept, couldn't stop themselves from leaving these these little notes around. (laughs) I think by the end of the retreat, I had heard someone talk about what Metta was. And I thought about leaving every day. Every day I thought, I'm out of here. And you know, the teachers didn't look that much like my idea, idea of what great spiritual masters <laughs> should look like. I, I was a little disappointed. You know, no long flowing beards or white robes. They didn't come floating into the hall. You know, they actually looked a lot like me. And yet what they said made a sense to me. And something kept me there each day. There was one thing that I heard or something that made me feel like, okay, I can stay. The teachers seemed to be telling me the truth. And they weren't offering something that I was supposed to believe. They just pointed to an exploration that I might undertake myself, some possibility. And I had the sense that there was something real in it, a possible way out of some of the turmoil and dukkha however subtle that seemed to permeate my life. 
And they seem to have a lot of confidence in this practice and, and they seem to have benefited from it. And I had the, the feeling that if it was possible for them, maybe it was also possible for me. And so I borrowed, in a great part, what I did was borrow their confidence at that time. And then by the end of that retreat, then I felt that I had tasted some sense of what this practice might be pointing to directly in my own experience. And it seemed to be in spite of myself at that time. It seemed like strong medicine that worked somehow despite the fact that I wasn't a very good, I wasn't a model yogi by any means. And so it was a kind of what's called bright faith or confidence. I'm going to use the word faith, confidence, trust, those three kind of interchangeably. You know, a sense of, well, okay, I can do this. You know, enough trust or confidence to, to take a step, whatever it might be. Martin Luther King Jr. said, faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. And faith is is described in the texts as a kind of confidence that allows us to enter into or set out a cross. And the image that's used there is, is setting out to cross a flood, a flooded area, a kind of confidence where we can step into new terrain, new, new land. And it also said that faith should be regarded as a hand because it takes hold of profitable things takes hold of that which supports our well-being, you could say. You know, seeks out, takes hold of that which leads to understanding. And it's also said that the function of faith is to clarify. It's likened to a a water-clearing gem. Somehow in the, maybe at the time of the Buddha, it was believed there was a water-clearing gem that one could put in clouded water and it would settle the impurities out. Faith clarifies our priorities in life, helps us to see what's really important, gives us confidence to set out on our journey. So we could see faith or confidence as the energy that seeks out that which leads to freedom. It clarifies what's important, what's worth doing in our lives. And then it takes hold of this energy so we can actually set forth, we can actually move. And most of us maybe all of us to at least a little extent who have come here to engage in this practice, to be on retreat here, have some intuitive sense that this path has the potential to lead us to a deeper understanding of what it means to be human. This sort of heart-based intuitive confidence that this practice has the possibility, the potential to lead us to more clarity, ease, and freedom in our lives. We wouldn't still be here if this were not the case. Some sense of that, however small or delicate it might seem at times. We could say that faith combines a wholesome yearning for freedom with the aspiration and determination to fulfill that yearning and brings together our deepest aspiration with a kind of inner trust that this journey is actually possible that it is possible to realize greater ease in a true sense, in a deep sense in our lives. That we might be able to find some stability, some balance in life with all of the changes and the ups and downs that are inevitably going to come. An ability to be with 
joy, with happiness, with pleasant experiences, without grasping them, demanding that they stay, and without becoming addicted to them. And conversely, an ability to be with difficulties and unpleasant experiences with sorrow, without falling into despair or constant struggle, allowing them to come and go. And this yearning for freedom could be seen as an aspiration to be free of habits of reactivity that cause suffering in our lives, for ourselves, for others. And I think a connection to some quality of our deep aspiration is essential in practice and essential for the deepening of confidence and faith. I think it's good to reflect on our aspiration regularly, maybe not as a fixed goal, but more as a sense of direction might be more useful because goals may change over time. If we have a goal, it's limited in any moment by what we know at that time. And as our understanding deepens and our practice unfolds, then goals may change. But if we hold our aspiration more as a direction that we're steering towards, then there's a, uh, there's a dynamic quality to that. It allows for a dynamic process of our practice. We start to see what leads in the direction of peace, of freedom, of happiness, and we steer towards that. We go in that direction. You could say it's our compass heading. And then on the other hand, we see what leads away from those good things, peace, freedom, ease. We see what leads to unhappiness, to harm, to suffering in our lives and in the world, and we steer away from that. And then intertwined with this connection to an aspiration, a deep aspiration, is some confidence or trust that we can actually move in that direction, that there's something we can possibly do. And, and then as we practice and walk this path, we see that it's actually happening step by step, that our understanding has deepened, that when we fall off course, we come back more quickly and that in our lives we actually are moving towards a greater freedom. Sometimes, especially maybe early in practice, this quality of faith or confidence might arise in regard to a teacher or another practitioner that we have heard about or read about or maybe met, you know, an inspirational figure, maybe someone like His Holiness the Dalai Lama or someone like Deepama. They may lead us to a quality of bright faith. You know, these people who can inspire us with their lives, with their kindness, their devotion, their wisdom, who have walked this path before us and they they help to show us the way and, and demonstrate through their very being that the path can be walked and walked to completion. And that as the Buddha said, if it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. And so we may draw confidence from inspiring figures or or teachings that we read or hear. And then as we practice, we start to see that our experience begins to parallel theirs. We see that it's the same path that we're walking. And this strengthens this quality of bright faith 
and we find that there's enough trust and inspiration not only to go for it, but to stay on the path. Because we start to taste the possibility directly for ourselves in our lives, in our experience. Of course, then we actually have to do it. We have to stay with it. You know, this bright faith, it might give us some inspiration, some courage to, to begin to take first steps, but we need to find something that will sustain us, a source of strength that will keep us going because it's not an easy path. And anyone who's been on it for any length of time knows this really well. You know, when I left that first retreat, I was filled with this bright faith, so inspired at that time. And then I remember it was really disappointing when that started to wear off. I figured it would just stay like that, you know, that it would last. And, and so I wanted to get back on retreat as soon as possible to get it back. You know, I figured, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll get back and I'll, I'll just start where I left off. And then, you know, my next retreat wasn't so sweet. And at times, most of it just felt like hard work, just slogging it out. And a lot of doubt came up. I thought, well, I can't do this, it's too hard. And I felt like I was a complete sham and everyone else there seemed like a sham to me. So this kind of initial bright faith that we might touch, it's pretty tender, it, it goes only so far kind of an intellectual confidence in, way, in a way with the teachers and what they say. It's, it's limited. You know, we can borrow someone else's faith for a while. We can get carried by this initial energy of, of a kind of bright faith. But until we see that the practice works in a deeper way, this faith can falter. It can get swept away by changing conditions. You know, when we, f- when we find it, it is a lot of work. And this quality of trust, of faith, of confidence, it's a central issue for us in practice in our lives. You know, until we get some real depth of this quality, we can lack the courage to really stay the course. And one obvious way we could see how this manifests in our practice is in terms of, of the hindrance of doubt. You know, the going can get rough at times and we feel like, well, nothing is happening. It's not happening, you know. We wonder, find ourselves wondering, well, what is it I'm supposed to be doing here? You know, what good is this supposed to do? These questions, it's, it's not the right practice. This kind of doubt, you know, what does watching my breath have to do with liberating my mind, my heart? times when we feel like we can't do it, you know, we look around and, and others we see, they seem like they're, they're sitting like the Buddha and, and we see in our own experience, there's just this wild, crazy mind and heart, this uncomfortable, restless body. And so we need some faith or confidence to serve as an antidote to this hindrance of doubt. Because when doubt is really strong, our practice comes to a standstill, it comes to a halt. We get frozen or paralyzed by it, caught in indecision. And of all of these difficult things that come, these hindrances, 
Doubt is said to be the most dangerous in a way because it brings our practice to a standstill. It has this possibility to bring it to a halt. And we're going to run up against it at times in our practice. It, it's going to show up. You know, even on the night of the eve of his enlightenment, the Bodhisattva, the Buddha-to-be, you know, he was assailed by doubt. And there's this description of, of this time when he's sitting under the Bodhi tree. He's made this determination to sit until let my bones and blood and sinews dry up. I shall not move. It's incredible resolve to sit until full awakening. And he's assailed by, by Mara, this personification of, of all of the difficult states, the hindrances and the defiled states of mind, you know, with these various armies and weapons and things. And he's not moved by any of it. And then all these seductions and attempts to lure him off his seat. And, and the great being was not moved. It's how it's described. And then the final thing that Mara brought to assail the Buddha with was doubt. This was the last. This was his final weapon. The one that was going to get him up off there. What gives you the right to sit here? Just who do you think you are? And it's said that at that time, the Bodhisattva touched the earth, asking the earth to bear witness to his right to be there, to witness these lifetimes of preparation is the way it's spoken about traditionally. This beautiful gesture of touching the earth. And it's said at that time, the earth shook in response to this gesture. We might imagine Jesus on the cross and this question, why hast thou forsaken me? Assailed by doubt just before his release into freedom. So doubt seems to be part of the package when we have a mind and heart. It's probably going to rise at times and probably often. Whether we're new to practice, it's our first retreat, or whether we've been at it for 20 years. And so we have this practice, this way that we, we bring this quality of weight, of active presence to the moment, trusting that things will present themselves. We see clearly into the truth of the moment, and this leads us to qualities of faith, confidence, and to a kind of deep surrender that lets a really heartfelt trust begin to emerge. The Pali word for faith, trust, confidence is sadda, has all these qualities. It's like something that we can really put our heart upon, place our heart upon. It's a kind of a refuge. It gives us the strength to continue the journey, to take the next step. And it's a strength of heart that allows us to make mistakes, to be willing to make mistakes, a confidence to not do it perfectly. I think for myself that this has been one of the greatest gifts of this practice over the years is that I allow myself to not do it perfectly, to not be perfect, which I didn't used to do. 
it's a tremendous gift to allow ourselves to to do something and to make a mistake and then have the possibility to learn from that. You know, there's a confidence that we begin to touch in a really, not because of what someone said, but we start to know that we can never really blow it completely in this practice. Because no matter what, we can start over. We can begin again, always begin again. We can't blow it. No one in this room can completely blow this practice. Because in each moment, right now, we can come back and start again. This is really good news. There's a quotation from the third Zen patriarch that I love. It's from a beautiful poem called Verses on the Faith Mind. And in there he said, to live in the highest realization is to live without anxiety about non-perfection. So we start to be able to live without anxiety regarding non-perfection. We realize that perfection is impossible. Can't ever get perfection. And points to a confidence where we allow ourselves to be just who we are in any moment. We don't take it all so personally and let things unfold one step at a time. And through this, we start to touch a mature, bright faith, very mature kind of bright faith. And this often arises at times of difficulty and challenge in our lives in practice, where we see, well, we made it through. We found a source of inner strength. We see that we can trust awareness. We can trust mindfulness. You know, ways large and small that we've, we've managed to open to and then overcome difficulties in our practice, in our lives. That we've come back to balance when we've gotten knocked over. I remember a time I mentioned this morning about a time when I, maybe not for myself, but of determining, someone suggested to determine to sit without moving for an entire sitting. And at some point I decided, okay, I'm ready to try that. And and I thought I was going to die. You know, it was so intense. But my resolve was very strong and I I felt like I couldn't have moved, but I didn't think I you know, I didn't think I was gonna make it. And then, you know, the bell rang and and I actually didn't move right away. It was like, Oh, okay, I can move. And it seems like a small thing, but the um, power of it in my practice was profound at that time. And I felt that after that, I felt like I can take anything. And it wasn't a really bad sitting, <laughs> it wasn't that bad. It wasn't like, it wasn't that big a deal, but it just got to this point of intensity. And the power of it was strong. I remember my first long retreat in Asia, in Burma, and I, I was pushed to the edge of what I thought I could bear in so many ways. I had ordained, was wearing monk's robes, and in terms of effort and intensity of difficult mind and bodily, mental and physical sensations, and heat, and at times facing a kind of exhaustion that was way beyond what I'd ever 
known or experienced up till then. And it's not, I don't want to scare anyone. <laughs> it's not like you're doomed to have to go through things, but it's a long road and it's, there are times when it's going to be intense and not easy. And you know, we all have some stories of times that we've made it through, whatever it might be. It doesn't have to only be in meditation. In our lives, it's just our life, no matter whether we're meditating or doing something else. And we, we found some reserve of strength that we've been able to tap into. And it's, it's good to reflect on these times and to highlight and touch the faith and confidence that may have come to us. You know, we can, we can also consciously develop faith at times. You know, last night Rebecca spoke a lot about thoughts and thinking and our relationship to that. And we can start to look at our relationship to this part of our life, to this world of thoughts and thinkings. And, and we start to see at some point that, that our thoughts are only as real as we believe them to be. You know, they arise completely unbidden. We don't ask for them to come. We don't really have any control over them. Certainly no control over the content. We see that they're not necessarily a reflection of reality. Really good news. I don't want the contents of my thoughts to be reality a lot of the time. And it could sound discouraging maybe, but actually it's this great relief because we don't have to blame ourselves for the content of our thoughts. You know, we didn't choose that. We don't have to take it personally. And then we start seeing, as we turn our attention to that whole realm, we start to see the fleeting, empty, insubstantial nature of thoughts. There's nothing there when we look at that. It's just this mental energy arising and passing. It's so intangible and fleeting. And if we don't identify them, we see it, they just come and go. They're not a problem. We don't have to struggle with them or try to get rid of them. We don't have to believe them either. They're not necessarily telling us the truth. We don't have to buy into them and create that reality and then inhabit it. So we can look at this way and we start to touch some faith. And then as our practice unfolds, we, moved in, we move towards what's called verified faith. Say it's the next stage of this developing of confidence, of trust. It's important and it's essential to develop it. It comes through our practice, you know, where we see for ourselves that we can put these teaching into practice in a really personally meaningful way. We start to know the way for ourselves and we don't rely on the strength of anyone else's conviction, at least not as much. There's one important shift that, that starts to happen in practice where teachings that we've heard a lot, they start to move from something that's theoretical to something that's directly, personally practical and applicable in our lives, in our practice. We see how something we've heard over and over actually functions and faith and confidence grows very strongly from seeing this. You know, we may hear, the same teaching we're going to hear if we stick with this. We're going to, there's only like three Dharma talks. <laughs> and then it's variations on a theme. We were talking the other night, maybe we should all give 
you know, we'll just all give the same talk in our own language. It would come out so differently. Maybe we'll, we'll all give an impermanence talk. And that would be so different. There's only like, you know, th- maybe four of them. And so we're going to hear the same things over and over. But then we start to verify this in our lives, in our practice directly, you know, might come in a very deceptively simple way. Say we've heard the teaching on impermanence, for example. You know, every, we're going to hear it a million times. All things are impermanent. That which is subject to arising is also subject to passing away. And we can, we can adopt this as a philosophical stance or some Buddhist belief or tenet that we're supposed to, to take on. But then we see that, well, there is an intuitive understanding of the truth of this in a, in a much deeper way than any belief in the words. That it actually has started to inform our lives in a transforming way, however subtly that might appear. And we, we see that we understand that if we try to hold on to this changing flow of experience, that we're creating problems for ourselves, that this is, leads to suffering. Or maybe we've heard teachings on, on the, the five aggregates or on the factors of awakening. It seems like something we were supposed to have memorized so we can you know, know that list. But then we start at some point to see directly how it applies. You know, we can see how we create a self in terms of clinging to these aggregates, the way that suffering arises in relation to this clinging to aspects of experience. Or we start to see how the powerful energies of the factors of awakening actually function in our practice, that they arise naturally and they incline us towards understanding. And so we see that uh, things that we've been hearing about actually directly arise in our lives in practice, that they have some real meaning for us, these teachings. And our faith and our confidence grows as we see that wisdom actually does arise. You know, that with patient, persistent effort, understanding will come, does come. It's good to look and see. There's things that we do understand. And this, no one can take this kind of faith, this verified faith. It's not tender. You know, even if we lose sight of it for a time, it's there. We can come back to that. We can remember it. We can touch it. And this confidence that comes with this kind of verified faith, it points to the understanding that we see that there's not only something real there, but that we have found it in our depth, that it's possible. This kind of faith takes the willingness to be present with the truth of things in every moment, in a moment, to see what's actually happening For example, we see how habitual patterns of reactivity, how delusion functions, operates, manifests in our lives, in the world, and how these things lead to suffering. And we start to see how we can let go, abandon, relinquish them, steer ourselves towards ease and freedom and peace. And we start to really know the inner terrain of our mind and heart we get to know it really intimately. And we spend a lot of time there and we see how we get caught over and over. We see where we're vulnerable, 
and we see where we have strength. We call our strength forth, we live from that more and more, from what we know to be true ourselves. And this kind of verified faith can't be shaken by what someone else might say to us. It's not so easily assailed by the winds of change because we know it for ourselves. We know it as well as we know anything. We start to gain a confidence where we know that we can trust awareness more and more. We see that awareness is not affected by what it knows, that the knowing is not affected by the known. We see that awareness of fear is not afraid. Awareness of anger is not angry. We see that awareness can actually hold anything that arises. So we can trust that. We can take what comes. We can, awareness can hold it no matter what it is. And we start to find a faith and confidence in a truth that was there all the whole time. It's just hidden somehow from us. We uncover it. We find a voice of wisdom that arises in our own heart. We listen, we trust a place inside us that already knows the truth. And this points towards an unshakable kind of faith where the deepest truths of life are known directly and nothing that arises internally, internally or externally give, gives rise to doubt. This unshakable faith in the unfolding of things and in our ability to realize the truth. And nothing can shake us from this in any real way. And we touch the understanding that it is a long path. We see the truth of that. You know, the power of habits, the power of delusion is, is uprooted and diminished gradually. It doesn't happen overnight. It's through stages of understanding, of realization. But our faith in the fundamental trajectory, in the onward leading movement, is strong and firm. We see that there's nothing in this flow of experience, of conditioned experience that is capable of lasting, providing lasting happiness. There's nothing in that that we can hold on to, to bring a, a lasting happiness or peace. And so we let things arise and pass according to their nature, pleasant, unpleasant. We let them come and go according to nature. We give them back to the nature. And our mind and heart come more and more into alignment with the deepest truths. And we touch a place of deep equanimity and the possibility of the deepest kind of happiness born of peace. And this is the ultimate trajectory of this path. This is the direction of our highest aspiration. Hmm. I have two endings. I'll pick one and I'll save the other. And I'll get it in there somewhere. So I'm, I'll finish tonight with a, another quotation from uh, Ajahn Chah, the great Thai forest master. He said, you will reach a point where the heart tells itself what to do. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. 
then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. The Buddha taught us to lay down those things that lack a real abiding essence. If you lay everything down, you will see the truth. If you don't, you won't. That's just the way it is. And when wisdom awakens within you, you will see truth wherever you look. Truth is all you'll see. So we can keep sitting together quietly for a minute or two, and then I'll, I'll ring the bell. <clears throat> So thank you for your kind attention this evening. And there's a time now for some walking meditation and then we'll have the uh, uh, sitting with the chanting at 9 p.m. And uh, maybe it won't be quite as short, but it'll be shortish. So please come. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.